Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Kotaku's But Screen, the only podcast that properly mourns Luigi. Rest in peace, my friend. Today we've got Kotaku's Maddie Myers, who joins the show to talk about deleting tweets, plagiarism at IGN, and what makes for a good Metroidvania. We also talk about some of the coolest storylines from this year's big fighting game event, Evo. And we rave about Hollow Knight some more because, oh my god, what a game. Plus, we talk about some TV shows, and Kirk gives his music pick of the week, his compatoir. It's going to be a fun one. Let's go. And we are back for another episode. My name is Jason Trier. I am the news editor at Kotaku.com, and I am joined by Kirk Hamilton, the editor-at-large of Kotaku.com. Hello, Kirk. Hello, Jason. It's so nice to see you again. It is nice to hear your voice for another week. Uh, We are uh, heading into the middle of August. 2018 is near its conclusion, and I am excited to talk about video games with you. I am very much looking forward to that, too. I think it'll be... We have uh, a special guest coming on the show to talk about a whole bunch of things. Um, I just wanted to give a quick programming note before we bring her on and before we talk about a few things. So, um, as many of you have noticed, we are doing a few... We are experimenting with the structure of the show, talking about some off-topic stuff right up front, and we were, were doing your new weekly pick, weekly music pick. What is it? Kumpatow? Kirk's music pick of the week? That's it, right? Kirk's music um, pick, something like so, that. So, w- uh, some people I know, um, just because I've gotten this feedback, just want to hear us talk about video games. So, here's what we're going to do, and we're going to play around with this, and feel free to give us your thoughts at splitscreenetkotaku.com. But I think what we're going to do is we're going to talk about video games up front, and then we're going to save all off-topic stuff for the back end of the show. So, if you want to, if you don't care about our thoughts on TV shows or Kirk's music recommendations or whatever else, um, you can just cut off when we get to that section, um, which I think is a good compromise for the people who just want to hear us talk about games and the people who want to listen to us talk about everything. What do you think, Kirk? Is that a good compromise? Yeah, I think that's fine. Um, I think sometimes you just need to make a compromise, just like the great compromise of 1787. I think that this is the great compromise of Kotaku Split Screens 2018. All right. Um, I think this feels like too much off-topic conversation for this oh, yeah, podcast, uh, so we, we should probably get, probably get right into games. it. Yeah, we should. So, Kirk, I want to talk about a couple of things that we've been playing before we bring on our guest. Um, why don't I start, and I'll talk about the things that I've been playing. Um, two games, Hollow Knight, which we've talked about a bazillion times, but I'm I'm getting closer and closer to 107%. I'm at 100 right now. Um, mm. Finally beat that third third trial of the Colosseum. I'm, I'm about to take on the final, final boss. Um, just an in- incredible game. Just a stellar game. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And then I'm also playing, and I'm going to save talk on this for a while, but just wanted to tease tease everybody lightly that I've been playing the new Dragon Quest game, Dragon Quest Eleven, And it is a Dragon Quest game. If you played one Dragon Quest game, you played them all. But it is so refreshing 
refreshing to play it after uh, being so disappointed by Xenoblade 2 and then being pretty disappointed by Octopath Traveler. It's so nice to just get to this traditional RPG that just does all these really interesting things in in a very traditional, classic, like old-fashioned way. And uh, we'll talk more about this in the future, but uh, I'm I'm enjoying it. It's it's a good one. Nice. Um, Kirk, what are you playing? I'm playing a bunch of stuff. Uh, we will talk more about Dead Cells when we bring Maddie on. I obviously reviewed that game. I played a lot of that game. I think it's very good. Um, if you really want my thoughts, read my review. Uh, but we'll talk more about it in a little bit. I have been playing more No Man's Sky. I've been playing still a lot of No Man's Sky. No Man's Sky is a fascinating and very uh, engrossing and good game now. I, I like it a lot. Uh, it still has a lot of problems. It still has a lot of bugs. It's uh, a weirdly uh, just like opaque and kind of unknowable experience in some ways, just because there are still so many times where I can't do something and I'm not sure if I'm doing something wrong or if the game just hasn't explained it or if the game is just bugged and uh, and I can't tell. Is there so, is there like a motivation to keep playing? Like, is there some end goal you have? Like, I remember yeah, in the original one, it was get to the center of the universe. Well, so is there's there that. Like well, that? that was kind of almost actually that was really never the goal there's the atlas path still exists so you can go to those atlas stations and follow that sort of philosophical journey there's a new story that they added which is like a structured scaffolded narrative involving you trying to find and rescue this other person i haven't finished that but that's super structured there are quest lines as a base quest base building quest line that's actually unfortunately kind of still bugged but that you build a quest and you do quests for each of the employees that you hire for your base so yeah there's a lot more structure oh now. interesting and, and then there's know just, that. you know, you want to get more stuff and you want to find really amazing new planets. So you want to, you know, just get more money and buy better gear so that you can get around faster. And there's sort of that low level motivation, too. But I really like it. It's really it's a really cool game. Cool. Um, additionally, I've been playing more Destiny 2, kind of just keeping that game on a very low burn as Forsaken yeah, is about to come out. I wrote about this earlier in the week, but the Solstice of Heroes is going on and the grind in that is just incredible. There's uh-huh. a whole lot to say. I have a lot of very complicated thoughts and I don't mean complicated as a euphemism for bad. I just mean they're just complicated thoughts about the way that Bungie is adding grind to the game and the way uh-huh. the game is changing and what that says about the fundamental appeal of this game that adding this much grind, I think unequivocally makes it better, but is that better? And why do we play video games? So it's, it's brought up a lot of <laughs> thoughts for me that I, I'm not going to get into now, but I'll yeah, either we'll write talk about, about that another time. Yeah. yeah, we'll certainly talk about it. And I'm very curious. Especially about, with Forsaken about, coming. Yeah, there'll be lots very, of very curious. I'm very curious about Forsaken. And then I have been playing Monster Hunter World on PC, which is still Monster Hunter World. It's still a great game that I really like. It's easier to play because it plays at a higher frame rate. And uh, my one thought that I'll share on that right now is that I had been using the Charge Blade when I played on PS4, which is this big, crazy sword and shield that you then combine into a huge axe. And if you fight with the sword and the shield, it charges it up and then you dump the charge into the weapon and then you have these extra charges. It's a very complex, I think it's the most complicated weapon in the game. And I decided as a monster hunter scrub that I would play with this weapon and I kind of got pretty good with it, but it's very complicated. And on PC, I thought, you know, I'm going to try something different because if you play, you know, there's a bunch of different weapons in this game, play with a different weapon, makes the game very different. So I'm just playing with the dual blades, which are just really fast moving. There's not even a block. You just get in there, dodge, attack, makes the game closer to Bloodborne, maybe. Really fun. Um, I'm having a great time playing just with these blades and not having to worry much about, you know, there's some mechanics there, but not having to worry near near as much about my weapon and like the state of it and what I'm doing and just moving faster. So it's, it's, I've been having a great time. That's a great game. Cool. Very cool. That's um, it for me. 
So, yeah, so uh, real quick before we bring on Maddie, I just want to say that there has been a lot of conversation around uh, a story that we published on Kotaku this week, and it is about the sexist culture at Riot Games. It's by Cecilia D'Anastasio. Um, I had been working with her on that story for a long time, very long time, editing it and helping her guide it through, but she deserves all the credit, of course, for reporting and um, getting a whole lot of people to talk about the horrible things that are happening at Riot. Everybody should read that. If you have not already, please go to Kotaku and read it. It's called Inside the Sexist Culture of Riot Games. Highly, highly recommend that everybody read it. Um, yeah. Making a lot of waves already. And it seems to be uh, pushing pushing people to change and hopefully it will lead to some widespread change. But yeah, I'm really proud that we were able to publish that and really happy about it. Um, so go check that out. Um, all right. Why don't we bring on why don't we take a very quick break and then bring on maddie myers vr training platforms like the one developed by fundamental vr and orbis international are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients as you practice each skill the muscle memory starts to develop learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact We are now joined by our colleague, formerly of Compete, rest in peace, for whenever Compete, now a editor, an editor at Kotaku.com. Maddie Myers is here. Hello. Hello. I'm back. Maddie, welcome back to the show. This time we are not going to talk about uh, Ant-Man. No. Because but we do I have to talk Ant-Man about Metroid because that's we do. Yes. We do. the other we're, thing. We're always going to talk I about do. Metroid. <laughs> Yes, um, but we're not going to talk about uh, Ant-Man or Marvel or comics nope. or comic book movies, mm-hmm. um, even though Ant-Man and the Wasp just came out, and I'm sure you have lots of strong opinions on I it. I do, but you know, it's okay. It, we don't have to talk about any of that here. This is a video well, game if you show. Give us like a, if you want to give us like a five-second Jason, version, what the fuck, man? Um, you just were like, yeah, we don't have to talk about said... this, and now you're talking about it. Well, I was going to say, well, because last time we were talking about why Ant-Man was terrible. I Okay. I don't think it's terrible. And the reasons why I don't enjoy Ant-Man and the Wasp have everything to do with what I explained during my last appearance here, which is just that Janet Van Dyne in these movies is a very different character than the comics. And I don't think that's inherently Mm -hmm. bad. It just, it's something that's kind of frustrating if that's a character that you want to see. And I'm in an extreme minority there. I realize most people really Mm -hmm. enjoyed the movie and they should, it's got fun parts, but it it is fun to hear your, uh, uh, (laughs) dissenting opinion. I'm glad you think no, it's not, fun I, I'm, as I'm opposed to me being a killjoy who's who's <laughs> crapping on a movie that many other people really enjoyed. But. No, we here in Kotaku Split Screen we like to get a variety of opinions on a variety of subjects. I thought you were going to say here in Kotaku Split Screen we like to crap on things that I thought you were going to say that too and I was like I don't know that that's entirely accurate. I'm not sure it is either. No, I actually I disagree with that. I, someone said that didn't someone say that about us once, Kirk? That like we we crap on some like things all the time and we yeah, like, I think it was when we were talking to maybe Aaron Flynn or something about EA. Oh, yeah, 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 he, yeah, he implied yeah. that we were very negative about the games industry, which I guess I could see from mm. a games industry perspective. But I feel like we're no, not I that don't negative. Think that's true. No, I think he was just extrapolating. Maybe he saw just Kotaku as being negative, mm-hmm. or maybe he was just... Well, that could be know, its own entire topic on this That's show, true. but That's it's true. also not on the list. <laughs> no, it's not. Anyway, on the show, we love to love things, and actually, that makes for a good segue into our first topic, which is the so last time you were on the show, we were talking about why... 
people and why you in particular, Maddie, love Metroid. Today, we wanted to talk about something related. What makes for a good Metroidvania? And the reason that's such an interesting topic right now is that there are so many Metroidvania games that have just come out. It feels like August uh, is the month of Metroidvanias. Hollow Knight just came to Switch, and now there's Dead Cells and Chasm and Iconoclast and all these other games that are popping up, especially for the Switch, that are designed as these games where they're kind of action-adventure-y games where you can go around and find hidden secrets, and they're designed as worlds that you can continue to explore and unlock in a nonlinear fashion. I think that's the definition of a Metroidvania. Um, so, Manny, I want to pop the question to you first as a huge fan of Metroid and subsequently Metroidvania games. What do you think makes for a really good Metroidvania game? What are the qualities? I, I think that you're right that the definition now means a game where you can explore the worlds in a nonlinear way, but there are a lot of different kinds of games that do that, so that definition has never really felt specific enough to me. And I mean, usually people are only referring to the 2D Metroids when they use the word Metroidvania. Um, mm-hmm. But personally, I, I've always been kind of disappointed that people use Metroidvania to encompass so many different kinds of games because it usually then implies that games have something in common with Metroid, but they don't really beyond some basic gameplay characteristic. And the things I really like about Metroid are like the show-don't-tell story of you walk into a room and slowly discover something. There's no dialogue. You just have to figure out what's happening through mood setting and atmosphere. And the fact that you happen to play the game in a nonlinear way and you can unlock new areas by collecting items in ideally that would also work with the storytelling of the game in a compelling way insofar as there ever is a story in Metroid. And and that's not something I see very often. So I'm very, picky about me- the word metroidvania but no one else do you have favorite is. metroidvanias <laughs> other than metroid games uh i mean i thought axiom verge was okay i i haven't played the most recent ones and i want to i know you guys love hollow knight and i want to check it out so i'll have to hollow knight is actually it. perfect at the show don't yeah. tell thing and it it like leaves you these breadcrumbs and i'm kirk i'm i'm curious to hear your take on this question too but yeah hollow knight leaves you these breadcrumbs all over that are like little bits of story yeah. and you have to piece it together you're that sounds great. Which yeah. re- re- basically relies for people like me. It's like, all right, I'm going to go on YouTube because <laughs> I don't understand any of this. Kirk, what do you think makes for like a really good Metroidvania game? Um, yeah, I think the exploration is key. I, I've been thinking about this a lot since I just reviewed Dead Cells, which I've seen very commonly described as a Metroidvania, and I don't really see it as one. I should caveat all of this. I don't this. think you can be one if you're procedurally generated. Well, so you can in one way, and I'll get into it in a second. But So I want to caveat this by saying that genre distinctions and debates about whether something falls under a certain genre are like already a little bit, you know, they're not the, the most, most useful most debate. The most fun conversation you could <laughs> yes, ever correct. have. That's really where I was going. They're the most <laughs> fun conversation possible. And they always end in a satisfying way with so, the conclusion everyone can agree on? Yes, precisely. I, they are... F- so Zelda, <laughs> RPG. Right. Action or... RPG, action adventure. Um, I, they're fun, though, in a way, because they let you sort of isolate and talk about specific aspects of a game. Just mm-hmm. they give a framework for that, and that's why I think this kind of right. thing is that's fun. interesting. And I think that's interesting with Dead Cells. So... 
Um, so, Maddie, what you're saying about how some of these games don't share certain things in common with Metroid is very true and sort of gets to why Metroidvania is both a useful and also incomplete term because it's this portmanteau of two games and it combines two actually very different games. I know. I'd say like people sort of say Symphony of the Night is the Castlevania that they're they're saying fits into this because that's also got the sort of nonlinear level exploration mm-hmm. and the upgrades still you get 2D, to let you yeah right still two D and so you're already sort of like bastardizing the term and it's not really about either of those games since they're both very very different games in so many ways mm-hmm. so then the things they do have in common wind up being to me the things that define a Metroidvania which is yeah you have a map it gradually grows you reach a dead end and then it's you know there's some vine there or some red door and then eventually you get a weapon the weapon lets you open the door etc. And that's kind of the, the that feeling of sort of gradually unfolding an origami, an origami, you know, sculpture is the feeling that I associate with these games. Certainly, the feeling I associated with Hollow Knight. Dead Cells is an interesting one. So this is a great game. I reviewed it. Um, read my review if you want to know what I think of it. It's a really easy review to write. It's one of those games that's just good. You just kill stuff and it's fun and you get better at it. It's hard, but there's cool stuff and that's about it. And it's a good game. It doesn't have the same it's very different than hollow knight as an example it doesn't have the same kind of exploration as hollow knight a lot of people have been asking me oh like i really like hollow knight is dead cells like hollow knight and my answer is usually (laughs) no i mean it's it's hard side-scrolling game with melee combat but no not really it's pretty fundamentally different because hollow knight is this game where you're kind of alone exploring this eerie buried kingdom that just goes on and on and on and you learn this totally elaborate story that you you know kind of piece together jason like you were saying in that dark souls kind of hidden you know it's it does have that metroid you're alone exploring. or you don't feeling. piece it together and you just watch it on YouTube. yeah right right <laughs> you, you, piece, on. you piece some together and it's enough and if you really want to know you know the whole story of whatever like the the backstory of the beast and the king and whatever you can go watch that on youtube so it, it yeah it has that and dead cells doesn't have any of that dead cells actually thumbs its nose at the concept of lore your guy will find lore on the wall and make fun of it there's just very very little backstory so in that way it's different it's also like you said it's randomly generated so it's a rogue inspired you know roguelite rogue-ish whatever you want to call it where each time you die you start over from the beginning you have to get your upgrades again the levels are you know arranged differently even though they're in the same order so in that way also like that's just totally different than hollow knight which is these super you know authored levels but if you kind of zoom out on dead cells a little bit it does start to take on some of those traits because you'll get a rune say a rune that lets you make a vine grow from these designated vine spots and once you get that it lets you access a a different second area to go to than the initial one and you can change your route through the game so on a bigger level you are kind of unlocking doing that thing you do in a metroid where you unlock a new path because you get a permanent upgrade you don't lose that if you die and the game does kind of in this like macro level rearrange itself and if you look at the map if you think of the map as all of the game's biomes strung together in order they it does unfold in that kind of cool origami way so i you know i'm not really saying anyone who calls it a metroidvania is wrong since whatever i don't think of it that way (laughs) but it does have those elements in common i guess so okay so with dead cells it's all procedurally generated but you get these items that let you zip across things but you're never at a point um and i think this is a key characteristic of metroidvania are you ever at a point where you see something 
something and you're like, oh, I can't unlock this yet. I have to go get something you, that'll yes, let me unlock Yes, that it. does happen. You, you know, you'll do, be going okay. through the promenade of the condemned. That's sort of the first main level. And you'll see this rose up at the top of a building and you just can't get there. And you can tell mm-hmm. looking at it, okay, I need a wall jump to get there, which is a very mm-hmm. Metroidvania thing, right? As you see, there's a, st- a steep wall and then a lip and you can't reach the lip with your double jump. So you think, okay, well, obviously I'm going to be able to jump off that wall at some point. So it actually, it does do that. And that rose is always there. It's in a slightly different place, but it is always there. Yeah. So the reason that I'm a little bit skeptical and I'm going to check out Dead Cells, actually, after reading your article about how the fr- their frame rate drops on the Switch and they're working on fixing it, I might want to wait until... Honestly, the, it's, the it's not. I really don't think it's a problem. I get why people would want it. All right. But you could play it All now. Right. It's really good now. I played a ton on well, Switch. So I, I was going to say, in general, um, my feeling is that procedurally generated games just like don't do it for me. I just love playing a game and knowing that it was handcrafted and that's part of the reason I love Hollow Knight so much is that everything is just so meticulously designed and placed perfectly just from every pit to every wall to every secret entrance etc etc and that's what I really love about Metroidvania games in general and just really just that's what I think makes for a really good Metroidvania game is that very deliberate design and just knowing that everything you're seeing has been authored in this really smart and just interesting gripping way Um, I actually was thinking about Link to the Past and how that's kind of a Metroidvania because it has some of the same characteristics as you're going around the world. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see if Dead Cell can prove me wrong there because I was actually reading reviews of Chasm, which is one of the other Metroidvanias that just came out. Um, and a lot of the criticisms of that were that the procedural generation just makes it feel like kind of like yeah, it's you know that you're dead cells move of... so quickly. It's almost like, especially at first, it's just like candy. You kind of just get going. It's very, it's addictive. It has a really quick loop. It's so that it's just a very different game than Hollow Knight. I mean, if you go to it looking for a Hollow Knight experience, you're not going to get that. Mm-hmm. But like I was saying, it's a kind of a good chaser. It's different in a complimentary way. I, I'm not ready actually for another Hollow Knight after finishing, you know, yeah. 70 hours of Hollow Knight or whatever. That was plenty. I need to digest. So having this little uh, digestive or whatever you want to call it uh, is sort of nice. I'm mixing my metaphors. It's a digestive. <laughs> a little, a little. It's a, it's a it's chaser. Am little... I drinking? Am I eating? I don't know. No, it's like when they when you're at a fancy restaurant and they bring you like Lime a little, sorbet. little thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. that's a, a digestive, right? Or yeah, maybe that's a, yeah. that's a drink. Yeah. And it's yeah. also a chaser for all the alcohol that you right. had while right. playing Hollow Knight. Both, <laughs> right, definitely. <laughs> Man, Maddie, I you need to play this game. I'm very yeah. I would I would love to hear what you think. I think I think based on y'all's recaps, I would enjoy Hollow Knight the most of of the descriptions because I'm more similar to Jason in that a game that's procedurally generated has to really be doing something very clever for me to Mm -hmm. be like into it. And I I like it when a Mm -hmm. game is specifically designed. When people complain about a game being too linear, I usually am the person who's like, I like it. (laughs) (laughs) I liked knowing what I was supposed to do. And even in Metroid games, when you're exploring, it's still like obvious where you're supposed to go on some level. Like the exploration Mm -hmm. feels really rewarding in that way. So I I like a game where Mm -hmm. I don't just feel like I'm lost and also like nothing matters. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, you can get lost a little bit in Hollow Knight. Uh, After a couple of levels, you wind up in this space where you can just go any direction mm. and, and there are a few different areas you can unlock and get to but but it never feels like it's I don't know it, it never feels eventually you'll like hit a dead end where you can't progress though because presumably yeah. you need an item Some or points. whatever yeah, and yeah. it's so thoughtfully designed that you always I always feel cared for which is sort of how I describe mm. it in those games there's this feeling of the developers know what I'm doing and they're ahead of me and they're sort of taking care of me even if they're challenging me and I, I like that feeling a lot yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say it's one of the best 
games, not only one of the best games I've played in recent memory, but one of the best games of this nature since like the the classic ones, the Metroid Primes, the Super mm. Metroids. Three or four people. Spoilers for your goatee 15 list, bucks Jason. by three or four people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty crazy. My goat, yeah, my constantly updating goat list. That is <laughs> in my head, just constantly being updated. Um, let's talk about a few more things. Um, first of all, we have to, uh, sh- like, we have to take a shot for Luigi, mm-hmm. who uh, died this week. Rip. He was just killed. And he didn't even die. Like, at E3, we saw in a Smash trailer, Ridley uh, kill Mario and Mega Man. And then in the most recent Smash trailer, in the Smash Direct this week, uh, Luigi died not too Ridley, not too a uh, famous character in anything, but just like a fucking ghost that looked like death. <laughs> he um, died to death. So. I think if you're going to die to anything, yeah, yeah. if any death is going to well, count, but, yeah, like, it's going to be death. We saw his specter emerge from his body. It was a much yeah. more intense death than Mario's It was visceral. Death. I felt, I felt yeah. moved by that. And I mean, we all know Jumpman has multiple lives, but like once you see Luigi's specter emerging, you're like, wow, yeah. he's done yeah. for. Yeah. He's, he's not going to come yeah, back. So yeah, it's, no, a, it's been a tragic time for us here at Kotaku.com. It mm-hmm. is. Yeah, we've all been really upset about it. Uh, even though you hear us laughing, it's actually just us trying to bury the pain. It's true. Mm-hmm. true. Um, laughing through the tears. It's, it's more of a wake feel, where we're celebrating yeah. his life and what it meant to us and not necessarily like reveling in the sadness because that's not what he would have wanted. It was nice that he got his own year, that he got to celebrate his mm-hmm. 30th birthday. And what and a he, great year. It really was. It was maybe the last good year, I think. <laughs> it was. It was. And I think it's fitting that Luigi has become known for the Luigi death stare. It is. And so he died doing what he loved, staring <laughs> at death. But in the end, death got him. In he couldn't end, stare death. quite <laughs> enough. Um, let's move on. Let's talk about some real news. So this is one of the wildest stories that uh, we've seen this year, I would say. Um, at least I think it's wild. Just as a as a journalism junkie, and Maddie, I know you are too. Kirk, Kirk doesn't care as much. But... Uh, so, <laughs> um, so here's the story. So this week, I, it's Matt, Maddie's shaking I love when you preface stories this way by telling people how I feel about it. It's just like it. a subtle burn at your colleague before moving on as though nothing has occurred. Yeah. Like yeah, what the classic, fuck, man? Classic, classic Jason move. All right. Yeah. That's, this is the split screen experience. Um, yeah, so let me tell the really story. Is. So really this is. week. This week, uh, late on Tuesday night, a YouTuber named Boomstick Gaming, uh, who is a pretty small fry YouTuber, had about 11,000 subscribers at this time, um, posted a video saying, IGN stole from me. And in this video, he made this very compelling case where he would clip his own review of the game Dead Cells, which we were just talking about. And then he clipped IGN's review, video review of the game Dead Cells. And he would read the sentence, and then IGN would read a sentence, and IGN's sentences sounded eerily familiar, strikingly uh, similar to what he had done. Um, and then when, when you see it written out, you can actually see in the Kotaku article about this, I wrote out a few examples. It's very, very clearly... the. the uh, uh, taken from this other guy's review. Um, IGN 
took a lot of flack for this. There was a whole lot of controversy. They took all of Wednesday to think about what they were doing. And then Wednesday night, they announced that they had fired this dude who wrote the review, Philip Mewson. Um, I believe I'm pronouncing that right. And then uh, actually a tipster pointed me to another example of him having plagiarized. And this was before he started at IGN where he made a FIFA review um, that was actually taken. Basically, he just took all the sentences from Nintendo Life's reviews from a, a portion of Nintendo Life's review and rewrote them and let the it was the same exact order of each sentence so the ideas of each sentence are the same and you can see that the words are in slightly different order so very clear plagiarism when it comes to plagiarism this sort of thing never happens uh once it's always a pattern um so yeah so as we know uh plagiarism is one of the worst sins that one can commit in journalism so it's pretty wild i think this is the first time i can never remember this happening in the world of video game writing and reporting and critiquing um maddie i'm curious to hear your thoughts what do you make of this whole situation and and uh do you think that this guy's career is over uh, i mean i think so i <laughs> it's hard for me to even imagine plagiarizing it's it's like really tough for me i just in my mm -hmm. personal life a friend had to fire someone at his job for plagiarizing something at their job. And so I was thinking a lot about it also even before. Or a different a, a marketing job, actually, um, oh, but okay. not in games. And so I've been, when that happened, I was like, wow, I've met her. She doesn't seem like the kind of person who would do that. What is the psychology behind even doing it? And I was really fascinated by it. And then this happened. And so I've really just been thinking about it. And like, I know I would never do it, but some people do, and why? And it's kind of similar to the questions we ask about, like, why do people troll other people, and, like, what makes mm. people do things that <laughs> well i think with plagiarism it's something it's it's more of an addiction or a mental yeah. illness and this or is like kind of me sad, um, like in my in my friend's case that his coworker was like saying that she just felt so overworked and like she could, didn't have enough time to to really write the things she was supposed to be writing that was her excuse and yeah. she had completely justified it to herself and that mm -hmm. was like wild to me i was just like <laughs> but anyway <laughs> yeah that's the thing i think you just convince yeah, yourself that you it's, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing that it's okay um i saw some people theorizing that it was because he was like in over right. his head at ign or overworked but, but that is never what examples, i would do if i felt overwhelmed yeah. <laughs> Not only that, but the examples of him doing it before IGN also yeah, paint, exactly. paint a picture of a pattern. Mm -hmm. um, Kirk, what, what do you make of this? I, I joked before that you didn't care, but I know that we were we were having some interesting conversations about this the other day. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I care. I, I think it's you know it's it's a it's a really interesting story on a number of levels. I have a few different thoughts, I guess. First one is I really feel for the editors at IGN. I know we know mm. Tina over there who yeah. used to work mm -hmm. with us, mm -hmm. and um, just because this could very easily happen to, to us, this could happen to anybody. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, our freelancers are great, but we could totally have someone who we had no idea lifted text from a YouTube video that none of us would ever yep. have seen. And there's no way to know. And there's no way to that, Especially yeah. with a video, which is not even written mm -hmm. down somewhere. You can't Google index it. But also you trust your writers and you don't go and check everything that they write against the internet. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel for them. That's one thought. Um, another, yeah, I don't really... I don't really understand the mentality either and you know and hesitate to to guess too much about why this particular guy did it though I've th had the same thoughts similar thoughts to you Maddie in the past I remember when I think it was Fareed Zakaria right who got kind of caught for for 
plagiarizing a whole bunch of his own stuff. There was this this whole story, and he now Jonah Lehrer was the one who plagiarized his own stuff. Fareed Zakari, Zakari, Zakari uh, plagiarized other people. Oh, okay, it was other people, and even yeah. and then I remember being shocked by that yeah. only because that guy is really successful and clearly mm-hmm. a good writer and a really smart person. And he's you know he's bounced back. I think if you're that established, I guess you can fuck up like that and, and stick around. Uh, but. <laughs> It still boggled my mind that you would be that well-known and somehow think you could get away with this or that you would even need to. I mean, if you're feeling overworked and you're as famous as someone like that, or honestly, in this case, if you're feeling overworked and you're writing, you're an editor at IGN, you're doing fine. You can say, I'm, I can't write as much as I needed to or something. I don't know. So I, there's something else going on there that I don't fully understand and that I you know don't totally get. One last thought on this is this is definitely, this is something I've thought about at times just because there was like one wrinkle of this and the fact that this was happening in video games was that a lot of the initial part of this uh, review of both reviews there was all this sort of cliched games jargon of you know Mm -hmm. smooth gameplay and impact I don't remember the words but fluid right the kinds of things that people say all the time and I strive to avoid cliches but I do it too everyone does it especially if you write you know I've written thousands of articles over the last seven years and you just you know you repeat things you use the same language language and there's a there's also a bigger conceptual echo-ness to writing about video games here's an example um i there's a really cool thing in dead cells where you can choose what kind of food the game drops as health it's really funny like you can have meat or you can have vegetarian option or it can drop monster guts or it can drop just baguettes because the developers are french and so it's just baguettes i thought it was really funny i tweeted about it and then i thought oh i'm gonna make a kotaku article about this because this is funny and then uh the next morning polygon did an article about it and i saw it and thought ah well polygon did like the same article I would have done just saying oh this is a funny thing about dead cells and so I was like I'm not going to post mine but it's the that's well they probably saw your tweet well maybe or I mean it's been in the game forever so who knows like it also they it's just a funny thing that anyone could have noticed and decided to do a post about Stephen also was thinking about doing a post about it it's so there's a lot of just this well it's a funny thing I'm posting about it mm-hmm. and then you it's not plagiarism that was a complete coincidence it could have just been they thought the same thing but those sorts of ideas tend to replicate one other example this is big difference between that and taking. Oh some yeah. no, no, I, oh, of course, I'm not at all equating them. I'm, I'm more reflecting on just the nature of writing about video games and the ways that these things tend to bounce around. Um, I one think thing that recently, might be part of how someone might self-justify that it's okay. Yeah, like if you have yes. a personality type where you're able to do that kind of self-justification, right. you might be like. Well, people come up with similar ideas all the time. People are always using right, the same exactly. kinds of phrases in game reviews. Yes. No one would ever fault me for this. That's you know? a very like good point. It's it's fine. That's kind of how it always works. That's that's right. very true. But it's not. It's not how it should work. No. The, um, <laughs> I, so I recently, I try really hard not to read other reviews or watch videos mm. about things when I'm writing my own reviews. Me Probably too. for this reason, mm-hmm. because I live, you know, I worry a lot about that I'll accidentally echo somebody mm-hmm. or that somebody else's thoughts will make their way into my writing just because because you write enough thousands of articles that can happen. And um, recently, so I reviewed Hollow Knight for us, and there's a part in Hollow Knight where I, I talked about how this is a really striking and beautiful part of this game, is you meet this bug. Sorry, Maddie, I'm going to tell you about a cool part, but it's not it's a It's okay. Spoiler. I forgive you. You. You, you, come, you come to this city, this underground city, and it's raining through the windows, and it's really gorgeous. And there's this bug that you kind of run into periodically on your adventures. You find him there, and he's looking out the window, and he says something to you like... Oh, the rain for the city, I've heard that it comes from a great underground lake far above the city and that it's leaking through the ground, which is just a really 
beautiful image. And then much later in the game, you I found the lake. And the game didn't make a big point out of it. It was just, oh, I looked at the map and realized, oh, there's this huge lake on top of the city, and this is it. And the water's leaking down. So I wrote about that in my review as this kind of, you know, this experience that crystallized how remarkable it was that this game, you know, made me believe in this city and really felt believable and really cool, or in this civilization. So later I'm watching a video by a guy named Joseph Anderson, who's a really good YouTube video, uh, like video, video critic. And he he did a big, long video about Hollow Knight that I watched after I wrote my review. And he talks about the same thing. And he's, he kind of says the same idea. Like he says, oh, you know, that there's this lake and the lake leads to the rain. And it's really cool because it connects the map. And I'm sitting there thinking, so it would actually be, you know, his review went way up, way before mine, but I, of course, didn't watch it. So I'm thinking, man, there are so many times when someone can can get the sense that they don't you know that someone's stealing ideas from someone else this kind of thing is such a fraught topic and there's so much you know there's so much writing about games and there's so many you know coincidental repetitions of the same ideas that when it really happens it just makes the whole thing even more fraught and adds a whole new element yeah. or aspect to the whole thing yeah, but I think that that this uh, we've never seen a case like this. Oh no, it was certainly clear not. Cut like someone stealing from someone else. I think yeah. I mean, I was accused of plagiarism once a few years ago by someone who was like, "You wrote about The Sims patch notes and how funny they are." I wrote <laughs> yeah, about that. I get that Sims, sometimes too. I think it was when I wrote about replaying Bloodborne. Someone's like, "I'm replaying Bloodborne," and I tweeted about it. I'm like, "I okay." Right. <laughs> like, I, I don't, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Well, I don't know and that you. type of thing happens, and it's always. I mean, nobody's gonna be like, like I'm not going to get fired because someone accused me of plagiarizing like, no. and, and that type of thing like coincidences happen mm-hmm. like i swear to god i hadn't seen that or even mm-hmm. thought of it um <laughs> but but the point being that what's so fascinating about this is because is that we've never seen something this blatant and and it's just wild that it it happened and it's just what's interesting is that uh i don't really know anything about this guy philip musen i think he was a recent hire there i had never i've never met him or anything like that um but i believe he was a youtuber before this and they discovered him and wound up hiring him for their nintendo position and it's it's interesting that like I, I don't know. I have no idea how much journalism training he may or may not have had, or how much writing training he had. But the number one thing you're taught in journalism school or in any journalism class is like plagiarism is the number well, one. Well, yeah, thing but you, you also commit. have cited these examples of extremely high-profile journalists who have plagiarized. I don't think it's a no. I know. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying yeah. that if he, it's if always only people who are inexperienced. He's just going to J school. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, I mean, I don't think anyone. <laughs> Hear me out. I don't think anyone should go to journalism school, but I think this might be a case where, like, maybe he really didn't think he was doing anything wrong. Maybe he didn't think, maybe he thought that it was okay. Maybe he justified it in his head. I think he justified it in his head, but I, I think that's a little different from he really didn't think it was wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think he found a way to justify it, and he probably didn't think it was that bad. You know what I'm saying? Maybe. Or maybe he looked at IGN and said, hey, this IGN news article is aggregating Kotaku, so why can't my review aggregate this other review? Mm -hmm, Like, I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't want to speculate too much about what was going on in his head, Um, but I just think it's really interesting, and it's it's, it's almost like you just have to... 
I mean, yeah, it can happen to anyone, even someone that you've trained the hell out of, but also you just have to be extra diligent. And man, it's just a cautionary tale. We all just have to like, <laughs> like cross our fingers that this never happens and work our asses off to make sure it never happens to our outlet. To flip around the thing that you were saying, there is an aspect of the reverse of this that happens all the time, which is that there are definitely YouTube channels that plagiarize the shit out of Kotaku and other mainstream <laughs> outlets. There are also and on just- this show, we're going to call them all out. <laughs> Right, and but I'm, you know I'm there is something. The scroll. <laughs> there I is something before. to that. I have though. called out that one, the one, the one channel that uh, yeah. that is just two people standing in front of a camera reading our articles out loud. Yeah, they're I mean, also so just it, like aggregation sites that just like take our stuff and try to. Right, farm so it. I think there's there's something to that. The idea that because ideas are just regurgitated and aggregated so many times mm-hmm. that there is a kind of a blurring of the lines that I could totally imagine occurring if you think, well, I mean, whatever, we take and ideas memes. from people all the time. There's sort of like a culture among some people who grew up on the internet that like everything on the internet is just fair ground mm-hmm. and it's like memes should just be shared. Or and like music it sampling who created and like anything. just that yep. form of creating art, which can be really wonderful, but also can uh-huh. sort of create these problems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I am very curious. I would love to hear from this guy. And I had reached out to him and, and I need to reach out to him again because I really want to hear his side of this and what, what his explanation is. But I'm very curious to see where he goes because it's impossible to imagine him continuing a public-facing career. Um, but then again... He could just wait two have... years and go back to YouTube. That seems <laughs> yeah, to work actually, for a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, I, I mean, not even two mm-hmm. years. There have been some, <laughs> some pretty high-profile cases in games media of people doing horrible things and then waiting like a back year immediately. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah or, or less or just a few months and then going back to e3 and making a patreon or whatever um anyway let's why don't we take a <laughs> why don't we take a quick break and then we will talk about some other things including horrible horrible social media <laughs> Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey, I'm Melissa Kirsch, Editor-in-Chief of Lifehacker. And I'm Alice Bradley, Lifehacker's Deputy Editor. And we're the hosts of Lifehacker's podcast, The Upgrade. On The Upgrade, we help you improve your life one week at a time. We talk to guests like former hacker Hector Monsegur about online security. You need to be aware of how you can be attacked. You need to be aware of what's your weakness. And Alan Alda on how to communicate more effectively. And in order to achieve that, we start with teaching exercises derived from improvisation. And sex therapist Steven Snyder about how to have great sex in a long-term relationship. What really works under those circumstances is if you enjoy the other person selfishly. Hey, your life, it's terrible. We can help. (laughs) Find The Upgrade wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back. We are still here with Maddie Myers. Hello again, Maddie. Hi! It's still me. So, <laughs> Maddie, Maddie, I have a question. Yes. Would you ever consider deleting your tweets? 
You know, I would I would consider it, but I I haven't ever. All of my tweets remain intact, and I have never previously considered it. However, I hear that the two of you are in consideration of it, and I, I'm I'm interested in being convinced. But but currently, all of my tweets exist. So okay, some some context here, um, and there's a bunch of context for this because Kirk and I have been talking. Uh, actually, on the show, we've been talking for a while about Twitter and all these controversies that have arose. Um, James Gunn was the one that we were talking about mm. most, but recent, more recently, over the past week, Sarah. John yeah, um, who was a Verge writer and wrote the Internet of Garbage, which is a it. great book that I recommend constantly. Yeah, she's super. Oh man, cool. yeah, I should check that out. Um, so, so really smart, sharp technology writer for the Verge was hired by the New York Times. People, alt writers, dug up her old tweets and found that she tweeted all these kind of like ironic, mean things about men um, and white men, especially, and uh, whole big controversy. It's I'm, I don't want to get into that because that's aside from the point. And the point is that Kirk and I have been talking about this and saying, you know what, we should delete our old tweets. And the reason for that is not necessarily because, well, I'll speak for myself, at least for me, it was not necessarily because I felt like I had something to hide from the past or like I'm embarrassed about people digging things up. But it felt to me more like I don't want to see something taken out of context mm. that I said and weaponized against me in a way that it's been done to so many different people. And then I read this article that Kirk sent me earlier today that really hammered this point home for me. And I'm just going to read a tiny bit of it. This is by Ezra Klein on Vox.com. And he refers to Twitter as an ephemeral self-referential mode of discourse that is unfortunately not ephemeral or tied to reference points at all. In fact, it's designed to be broadcast, archived, searched, and embedded by anyone in any context at any point in the future. And that to me is such a compelling like distillation of the problem, which is that we tweet about things as they're happening. We tweet about E3 conferences. We tweet about events of the day. We tweet about what's going on and what the climate is in our lives. And we were talking, Kirk and I were talking a few weeks ago about how the climate when James Gunn was tweeting those awful jokes was just so much different on Twitter than it is now. It felt so much looser and more more like like hanging out with your friends than broadcasting to the world. And I almost feel like, like after reading that line from Ezra Klein, it almost made me feel like Twitter as a platform should be auto-deleting old tweets because it's designed for moment-to-moment talking, but it has this permanence that shouldn't be there because it's meant to be like, what are you, you're reacting to the news of the day and taking out of context taking a tweet that's a reaction to the news of 10 years ago and looking at it now, it just make you seem like a moron or make you seem like you're, you're saying these horrible things. So that to me was a super, just like, that was like basically the argument that I had for wanting to delete my tweets. And Kirk, I'm curious to hear you chime in as well about why you decided to do the same thing. Yeah. So I, I have, I guess, you know, similar thoughts and some slightly different ones. I agree. I think that Ezra Klein article is really good. Obviously, I, I, that's why I sent it to you. Um, people should check it out. It's called The Problem with Twitter, as shown by the Sarah Jiang fracas. There's also a corresponding podcast episode of The Weeds, which is just also just as a random podcast re- recommendation, extremely good. It's um, generally... <clears throat> I think Dara Lind is on there a lot talking about immigration and uh, Matthew Iglesias and Ezra Klein. It's a lot of extremely smart people having really nerdy, smart conversations about things that matter. So they did a, they are, I'm in the middle of that podcast, but it's been very great listening to them the talk about it The second half is too. actually all terrible and you're Right, it totally deteriorates <laughs> and just gets awful. I've, so far, it's been really good. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with that. I think there's one thing that he wrote, let me find it, That's that I think is really good. He says... 
Twitter is built to reward us for snarky in-group communication and designed to encourage unintended out-group readership. And Mm. he talks about this on the podcast some, which I think is really smart. And that's that the way that Twitter works right now is that you... um, you're really rewarded for sort of speaking to your people and everyone's gotten so good at that. You, So many tweets are kind of partly at least about, you know, resonating with your crew and you, mm-hmm. you know, you say the thing or you make fun of the thing or you make the joke that you know people will get. And you know, there's so much, not just subtweeting, but just like you were saying, like out of context or taken out of context, nonsense tweeting where you're just saying, you know, something about WrestleMania and it's just a right. sentence. But like, it's like a joke that falls within the timeline right. of your, all of your, friends exactly. and it makes sense in that timeline yeah. so when you pull it out you get this context collapse which is a super interesting concept he attributes to dana boyd that is just mm. like a you know that context collapse means you lose the context of the statement because it's taken out of the time and suddenly it means something different and so twitter mm-hmm. is both designed to do that but then also designed so that we basically are constantly also getting these little dive bombs of stuff from other groups. So whenever you see somebody, and this is not my original thought to avoid plagiarism here, this is something we talked about on the Vox podcast, which you should all go listen to. Um, But when you see something, typically, at least when I see in my feed, something from, say, you know, I follow a lot of progressive people, a lot of people on the left, because I'm pretty progressive and pretty on the left. When I see someone on the right, it's always like some totally garbage right wing tweet of just someone just saying the dumbest, worst thing. And then, you know, whoever I follow is stunting on them or making them look like an idiot. And I think I'm sure it's the same way on the right, or at least I'm guessing, you know, they see the most outrageously progressive or left or, you know, almost like mockably whatever, at least in their circles, view of the left. And everyone kind of mostly gets this reinforced, uh, you know, version of their own scene, but then also gets this you know, really exaggerated or at least really extreme version of the other side or the other view. And so it's kind of really, it really has become so toxic, I think, for that reason. And Twitter is expressly designed to do that. So oh, yeah. that's, so that's some thoughts on Twitter. deleting tweets is going to stop that inherent well, so, right. problem. So, it's not. And um, so that's just m- some of my thoughts on Twitter, but that's not actually <laughs> like my reason for I deleting have, my I have tweets. a question for you too. Do people use y'all's old tweets against you ever have you ever had that happen to you where somebody found a really old tweet of yours yeah, and, and so, showed it to you and was like this is a total gotcha like oh sure someone, this was the thing that i mean a not a ton it's obviously definitely it not happened. to me as yeah. much as it happens oh yeah there was i remember man uh there were some times like getting ready for gdc back in 2013 or something and i was making jokes with you know various people involved in gdc about doing drugs and how we were going to have these hard drug parties and they were totally ironic tweets but then these gamer gators are saying well kirk hamilton likes doing drugs with all these people that he's supposed to be covering and you know it's it's that kind of little thing by and large no i don't really get this but um yeah but so but let me so let me get into my actual reasons for why i did it partly it's you know jason you were talking about doing it that made me think about it really it's just that i don't like twitter and <laughs> I am drawn to the, like, increasingly, I just don't like the platform. I don't like the people mm-hmm. who run it. I don't like how it operates. I think it's a bad place. It makes my day worse when I use it. And I think that it is a does a lot more harm than good. So mm-hmm. I like the idea, just totally abstractly, of reducing my own footprint on that platform. Both, I just don't tweet anymore. I, <laughs> I downloaded my archive, and I... 
I've deleted something like 50,000 tweets and they were all from, you know, I don't know, up till 2014. 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a shock. Yeah. And now I just barely tweet at all. Yeah. Um, so that's part of it. And another part is, is actually not really to do with any of this. It's just that I was reading through tweets from 2009, you know, from almost 10 years ago. And it was a very weird experience because they just don't feel like they were written by me. I don't remember mm-hmm. writing them. And it's almost like reading a stranger speaking in my voice. And I didn't really like that. I, I was going through my archive and I'm glad I have the archive. It exists. I don't, you know, I know that anyone can probably find any of these tweets. There's nothing scandalous in any of them. I've always been a very non-scandalous tweeter. So it's more that it's more that I just, you know, I like I was drawn to the idea of sort of trying to embrace this different way of using Twitter. And part of that is there's this old weird me that no longer really applies. And I don't even remember saying the things that I said. So why not get rid of them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about why the idea of people coming at me with my old tweets doesn't give me as much anxiety as anything else. And I think it's because people have done that to me, but people have also done that to me with my old articles. And as two other Mm. people who've been writing about games on the internet for as long as I have, you guys have probably also experienced that, where people will find there is a guy out there who is still mad that I misspelled Jackson Briggs from Mortal Kombat, his name wrong, in a Phoenix article from like 2011. (laughs) And for years... He had like multiple accounts and was like, Maddie Myers has never played any games and this typo so, is proof of I that. I don't get and that like, kind of thing well, for yeah, obvious but, reasons. But that maybe, wasn't but. a tweet. And, and so when the Phoenix went out of business and then a few years later, all the archives were gone and they do exist still, like they're just much, much harder to get to because they're like in this weird archival website now. And like you can use the Internet Archive to find them. But like it's become a lot harder to read the stuff I was writing from when I was age 19 to age 26, which like honestly, a lot of it was not very good. And I'm like, <laughs> OK, with people having more trouble finding it. So I was kind of like blessed with a sort of equivalent experience of having a huge portion of my timeline deleted for better or worse and I can sort of like pick and choose links from there to still link people to but also Mm. rest assured that a lot of my embarrassing like teen and early 20s like figuring out my politics in games past is not so easily accessible anymore because I don't I like you Kirk I read those old, old things and I'm like I feel like another person wrote this I mean I was like 21 and I didn't know what I really thought about Call of Duty and the (laughs) imperialism yet like I I wasn't I wasn't (laughs) thinking about those things so there's that and and I feel similarly about my old tweets but I also have kind of a weird affection for them like Mm -hmm. when I stumble across an old tweet that I wrote from a really long time ago it's not that I'm like alarmed by the past me sometimes I'm kind of like charmed by her and I'm like oh you (laughs) didn't know you were so naive, but like in such a sweet way. And I do, I have my archive and Kirk, I think the most convincing argument you've made to me is, is just the idea that by having so many tweets still extant, I'm sort of supporting Jack's bottom yeah. line, which by, by like sort of advertising something, something Twitter is constantly broke by the way, they've been in the hole for years and they're not profitable. Yeah. So it's not entirely clear <laughs> what their deal is. I mean, just in no. investors, investors investing really is what it is, but um, I don't want to help them. So that is a convincing argument to me, but I, I don't, 
There's already so much of my content on the internet that can be found and used out of context by my haters as it is. So my tweets are just yet another example of that to me. And while I think Twitter is different in many ways, I've already experienced that particular form of aggression so many mm. times that I'm kind of like, this is just something that's going to happen to me. Mm. You know? There's a, um, oh yeah, that totally makes sense to me. And there, there's actually a really good article that that reminds me of by Emily Dreyfus at Wired last week called The Sadness of Deleting Your Old Tweets. Mm. Talking because she did it as well, and she's talking about how I think you know I'm guessing a lot of people are kind of doing it in the wake of there's been a lot of discussion about it you know since the Sarah Young thing and whatever. Yeah, and plus w- Jack is just being a real jerk well, this week, and everyone's <laughs> just kind of over Twitter too. Yeah, yeah. the whole Infowars thing, yeah. which is separate. Well, the theory that Jack is in, is secretly or not so secretly an alt writer, I I am very much buying into. Mm-hmm. Um, like that he's just not like straight up libertarian. Like I mean, he might even believe Alex. And yeah, so, I mean, for context, this week he's been saying that he doesn't. Yeah feel like Alex Jones's accounts violate the terms of service. Well, so that's is, like partly what which, I'm I responding mean, I to. I think there's there's an argument to be sure. made that like tech tech these tech companies should not be deciding. Well, I mean the real conversation is how do these tech companies get so much po- unregulated power over the internet? I mean, ironically, that's exactly see. what Sarah Jong's excellent book The Internet of Garbage is about is whether or not private companies should be regulating the garbage that appears on their websites. And I think it's really good and makes some compelling points. So it's been like really weird to me to see her be the fixture of this particular situation. That's Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, to, a couple of, to respond to a couple of points you made, first of all, Kirk, I actually really like Twitter and still like Twitter and still have met so many interesting people and cool people and friends and close friends, including you, Kirk Hamilton, via Twitter. <laughs> Um, so it will always, so, well, it so will always a thought on that though. So the, the, a thing that, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold All right, on. go ahead. Let me, let me, let me, make I wanted to say one more thing about the wired article, can... but sure. Go ahead. Okay. No, fine. Respond. And then I'll finish. Wow. I'm watching you guys's friendship disintegrate in it real is. time. It started yeah, on Twitter. It's like and as it Kirk's ends. tweets are getting deleted, the friendship is disappearing. Like back yeah, to the you future can't style. Find our old it's really weird. It's weird. Anyway. Keep it the, together, guys. Uh, the thing, <laughs> my Skype picture is just fading. <laughs> the thing that I liked about this article is that in the end, she says the thing that makes her very sad about it is like what you were talking about, Maddie, is that she's saying mm-hmm. goodbye to her older self mm. and to a self that no longer exists that was also playing a role in an internet that no longer exists. And I agree, yeah. Jason, with that, that I've met wonderful people through Twitter. When we had Alana Pierce on a couple weeks we were, ago, we were talking about the whole Superna Galaxy thing and this like ridiculous, these jokes and these ongoing amazing conversations I would have with all these people. And that can no longer happen. That does not exist anymore for me. And... Looking back at that, you know, it's maybe Twitter was always bad if the people who started it were bad and didn't really intend on letting it become something good. Who knows? I do, you know, I did like that part of Twitter. And I think the difference between... Well, you can still meet people on Twitter. I, you just can't have the same sort of communal... It gets like, so much harder safe. once you have it's a lot of It's just so hard. Though. And like, at this point, the good is so outweighed by the bad that I really almost draw a line between what Twitter was and what Twitter mm-hmm. has become. And I say that, you know, I, I talk to listeners on Twitter. People people tell me stuff. I have great conversations. There are definitely still parts of it that I like. Okay. Well, so for me, my personal experience is I've still continued to meet interesting people on Twitter and will use it for as long as I can for at least that purpose even if I'm rarely tweeting anymore which already just like you uh, looking at the archives it was like all the way till 2014 then <laughs> something like, happened in like, 2014 right. wow, that what was happened, really, really shitty it was yeah. weird I don't know yeah yeah very bizarre <laughs> um, and yeah I mean to uh, so Maddie I, I think you make a salient point a really good point about uh, 
being able to use articles to attack people. And in fact, I'm way more embarrassed about many mm. of the old articles I've written than I am about any of the tweets that I've written. <laughs> but I think articles, there's just by definition, there's a lot more context mm-hmm. in those sure. articles. And you can kind of see where All the writer the was at the time. All of the embarrassing justifications I had at the time are available to exactly, any reader. But you know what? <laughs> But look, but I think that nobody can look at that and see, okay, so look at James Gunn, for example. Mm-hmm. If, if I were to look at an old Maddie article and then compare it to a current, a 2018 Maddie article, it would be like, oh, this is the progression of this writer. Really interesting to watch this writer's like evolution and her opinions change over time and evolve over time and grow more complex over time. And you look at James Gunn's tweets and it's just like, oh my God, look at these shitty jokes. Oh, look at his tweets now. He's tweeting about Trump or some shit. You can't really see that chart that evolution without the context and Twitter just strips away all the context and for me that is the biggest problem and the thing that I'm most worried about is someone finding like some argument I had or some joke I made in 2011 or whatever and just stripping away all the context and turning it you know, into a weapon against you know what me. It would I feel be. like you can't do that I think it would article. be you're going to be trying to get a job at an aerospace company in like 10 years and someone's going to say Jason uh-huh. Schreier hates the jets he hates jets here's a tweet of him talking about how much Jets terrible. suck, and it'll be you being like, the f- fuck the Jets. Jets are yeah. terrible. I mean, we and all then, know that's Jason's personal career aspiration because yep. he talks about it constantly. Yeah, he's going to so work right. on that's Jets. It's going to be a huge issue later. Yeah. That's yeah. A good point. Yeah. That's <laughs> always been my ambition. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to talk about one more thing, and we are running out of time, so we don't have a ton of time to talk about this. But Maddie, this past weekend was Evo, which is the world's biggest fighting game event, and you were covering this a lot. I was. It's funny we actually got an email. Um, I want to give a shout out to the person who wrote this email. So let me find this. Um, we got an email from Phil, who <laughs> requested that Kirk and I watch Evo and just give some hot takes because neither of us are familiar with fighting games. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Why don't you two give it a shot we did um, we didn't do I, that i didn't have a chance I was busy oh come on did you not even like look at my sonic fox gifts or any of that oh i, I saw that i know i did i enjoy <laughs> sonic fox he seems like a hilarious you're great like, you're great then entertaining dude um <laughs> that's all you have to know but, but the games themselves i just have no interest in watching mm-hmm. any of them like i could watch a little smash but the rest of them uh, um but anyway so so we brought we decided it would be better to bring in an actual fighting game expert on the show um so Maddie, so we only have a few minutes, but do you want to just give us like a quick summary of like the coolest so- storylines in Evo, the most interesting things that happened? Sure. People, the things that people who don't follow fighting games might be interested in. Um, so Sonic Fox, we can explain. He's he's this queer, black, furry fighting game pro player who started playing when he was like a very young teenager, and I think he's still only 19. He's very young and very good at multiple games, which is unusual. Usually fighting game and he players... he wears a fox yeah, suit, he right? Does. When you say furry. Or he wears like... like little fox ears or blue ones or a tail when he's competing. Um, and so, and he's very open about all of these things and about queerness and he's he's got a very charming and wonderful Twitter persona. I hope he doesn't delete any of his tweets because they're mm. precious. Each one is a precious gem. <laughs> um, but so he's, he's actually excellent at multiple games, which as I was saying is really unusual and it's part of why people are so fascinated by him. I think just because, you know, people think any form of prodigy is fascinating inherently but if somebody's able to place really highly like very different kinds of games that's unusual um and so he typically plays like 
Mortal Kombat and Justice, those games, NetherRealm Studio games, but um, he's been playing Dragon Ball Fighter Z or Fighters, whichever one you believe is the correct pronunciation. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's a debate, and he has been practicing that mostly and ended up placing first in that. And there was this whole saga during the tournament itself, which I wrote about and people can read about, uh, where like him changing his seat in the middle of a final match in a dramatic way um, that is under contention, but is within the rules to switch sides during a tournament. Um, nice. And so so there's there's drama like that, which is fun. And also uh, Street Fighter, like last year we talked a lot about Tokido beating Punk, which was really sad to see because you know punk is another like young up-and-comer who we were all kind of had a soft spot for but um tokido Mm -hmm. is like older he's my age and so personally i always like seeing like somebody in their 30s doing really well at fighting games because it makes me feel like maybe i'm not washed up unusual it's (laughs) it is unusual but it's you see it happen sometimes and so it was cool to see tokido win as well and so this year tokido was is down to the final two and it seemed like he was going to make it again but this other sort of younger up-and-comer Mr. Problem X ended up taking it so I mean I I think those storylines are really fun and interesting and like we had freelancer Ian Walker there in person and he got some really great stuff while he was there there was like the lone American player who was doing really well in the Guilty Gear tournament and he didn't win but he still like did pretty well I can't believe there are Guilty Gear tournaments I didn't realize Guilty Gear was popular enough to justify and also Smash Jason you mentioned and I mean you probably saw our coverage of the fact that the five gods of Melee are are shaking Mm -hmm. in their boots these days and for a while, people were saying that Smash Melee is like really boring to watch because these same five guys are mostly four guys since PPMD doesn't really like do anything anymore. All foxes. <laughs> They're not all foxes. They're not. PPMD, important, important note His here original for handle PPMD. <laughs> was Dr. Yeah. PP, but it, he changed it to be PPMD, which is obviously more professional. More sophisticated. Yeah. yeah, you'd put that in your email signature. You'd put PP, <laughs> MD. But he doesn't he doesn't really do much stuff anymore. Um maybe because he's been shamed by people laughing at his incredible handle. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so usually these other four guys win everything, but Mewtwo King got eliminated like pretty early and Armada got knocked into the loser's bracket before top eight even happened and we covered all of that live as it was happening and it was really fun and exciting and i think it's like if you don't think this stuff is exciting to watch then you would just look at all of this coverage and be like i don't understand this and i do my best to cater to the audience that doesn't understand it by highlighting like the emotional things that happen in these games as opposed Mm -hmm. to just talking about like okay like you know, Tokita's really great at anti-airs. Like, no one knows what, no one cares. So, like, I, you know, like, I try not to do that. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
too much when I'm covering these things. I, I try to let the compete spirit live on within me. Yeah. Um, yeah, you did a great job and people should check out kotaku.com ta- slash uh, tag slash Evo is the best way to check mm-hmm, out all that stuff because mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of cool stories from Maddie and Ian on Kotaku right now about the crazy fighting game world. I can't wait until Smash Ultimate comes out. And it's just going to totally splinter the scene. It's going to be wild. Oh, I'm excited it's for that be really because crazy. it's always um, fun to see that. It's fun to see weird things happen in, in pro gaming scenes. And I'm still going to cover them anyway. <laughs> Maddie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we have to say goodbye right now, but it was a pleasure. And we will have you on again soon to talk more about Amazon. <laughs> oh, I haven't gotten out of that. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. I'll prepare my Ant-Man. manifesto. Thank you for having me back to both of you. All right. Bye, Maddie. Bye. We are back once again. It is just me and Kirk, and it is now time for our off-topic segments of the week. Um, Kirk, why don't you start? Give us some recommendations. What do you What do you have for us this week? Books, podcasts. What do you have? Uh, I got a few things. Actually, I have a movie too that isn't in our show notes. That I'm just going to add. I watched Mission Impossible Fallout last night. Oh, nice. the new Mission Impossible movie. And it's pretty goofy. For the first half, I was actually a little worried it wasn't going to be as good as I hoped it would be. And mm-hmm. then the second half was really, really good. So I enjoyed it. And nice. the night before that, we watched um, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which is part five, directed by the same guy. Um, and I get those movies mixed up, especially the post-Mission Impossible 3 ones, those two, the Brad Bird one, and the, I think his name is Christopher McQuarrie, the the Rogue Nation. So that's Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. Those movies are both great. They sound and like just, uh, Tom Clancy games. They, well, and they're so unremarkable that I get the names mixed up, because in some ways they really are the stories almost are meaningless. It's just a bunch of spy MacGuffin bullshit. Um, and they're just these incredible action stunt sequences. And then by now it's, you know, Tom Cruise has become so famous for doing his own stunts and that you you know, he's obsessed with this idea that you, you know, you, you need to know it's him because that makes it so much more exciting. And it's super true. Um, in this movie, there are some outrageous stunts. There's a stunt where he jumps off a building or like, whatever, I won't spoil stuff. There's just like, there are parts where you know you're watching Tom Cruise do something completely outlandish and it is just extremely entertaining. Uh-huh. So um, the whole last 20 minutes is like, just extremely great. Uh, so I, I really, I, we had a good time. It was, it's, we were just cracking nice. up in the theater and nice. it's dumb. Like there's, it kind of takes us off more seriously. There's a little more continuity. I'm not really there for that. I don't need that stuff, but man, when it comes time to do an action sequence, those shows or those movies know what they're doing. So, um, I liked that. And one recommendation I wanted to make, uh, we actually talked about another Ezra Klein article earlier in the show, so I'm like all about Vox and Ezra Klein right now. But um, on his podcast called The Ezra Klein Show, he did an interview with Zanyip Tufeki, who's a, a Turkish writer academic. Um, I've She's around. I'm sure people have heard of her. She's extremely smart and really just has a very strong grasp on the effects of the internet on people and on politics and on America. And I just, I thought this conversation was just really enlightening and good. I couldn't hope to paraphrase anything she said. So I would just say people should go listen to her because the language she's using and the concepts she's talking about were just really helpful and illuminating. So I thought that that was really cool. Cool. Those are some good recs. Um, I have a couple TV shows. First of all, uh, Succession, which I talked about last week or the week before. I'd watched three episodes at the time, and I was like, I don't know about this. 
dude mm-hmm. it's fantastic you gotta watch mm-hmm. it it's mm-hmm. so okay. funny and good and such a like takedown of these billionaire horrible people and it's it it winds up like not only making you realize like think about these people in really interesting ways um it makes you feel for them the acting is great the writing is really good they just their power plays against one another are are fascinating and hilarious and the show clearly has a message that is just like these people are awful just doing awful things and it's done really well it almost reminds me of arrested development in some ways um it's not quite as like goofy and full of jokes it's more of like a serious drama where you care about the characters but in, in that way that it's like rich people who you're supposed to really think are awful but you still can't help but care about them and and want to watch their journeys together it's it's just really good it's really really well done i recommend it um nice and then better call saul came back this week and you told me that you've only watched the first season which i think is wild because uh that show is probably the best show on tv right now dude Mm. how can you not have watched the rest of that show yeah, it's not a judgment on the show. I just sort of haven't gotten around to it. It's the the way that shit, like the Americans, I think is a very similar one for me where it just kind of got away from me. I was yeah. watching it, but there, you know, there are just so many shows. There comes a point I where know, I know, it's but not a value judgment. Time. You just let a show get away from you and then you don't watch it. Give You got to make time. Yeah, for it'll, happen. it'll happen. It'll happen. Because two and three, which, well, you should watch from the beginning just to catch up, but it's all on Netflix. Uh, the first three are all on I'll Netflix. probably start with season two. I remember season one well enough. Oh, you do? Okay. Well, the, the thing I love about Better Call I love a lot of things about it. It's just spectacular in so many ways. But the thing I love most about it is the same reason that I'm obsessed with The Sopranos, which is that there's just this layer of subtlety uh, and the show just trusts the audience to get things or at least to think about things beyond a surface level that makes it so the characters don't need to say what they're thinking, um, which is something that a lot of shows just suffer from is is everyone saying what they're thinking at all times because they they don't want the, the audience to lose the plot. Um, but, but Better Call Saul is just like, it, it leaves leaves you all these breadcrumbs and lets you think about it and man it's just so well done this this newest season is already just starting off in incredible ways and man i just love it so much it's just so good i I think it's surpassed breaking bad this is of course to people who don't know it's the prequel to breaking bad starring one of the characters from that show and telling you the story of how he went from this like goody two shoes well not the greatest person in the world but this like i don't know if i'd describe him as a kind of a hapless no kind of like a a, chaotic neutral a well well-meaning lawyer to this just criminal lawyer and there's a great line when he's first introduced and it's like he's like uh in breaking bad he's like no you need a criminal lawyer no you need a criminal lawyer Um, (laughs) right it's so good and and Bob Odenkirk, who plays Saul Goodman, a.k.a. Jimmy McGill, is just an incredible actor. And he's playing alongside uh, Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike Ehrmantraut, who also has this incredible storyline across the show. And um, Michael Mando from Far Cry 3 plays Nacho. He's this fantastic character as well. And, of course, the maybe the best character on the show is Kim. Um, and her the actor's name is Ree Seahorn. I believe that's it. And she is just so good. Like, such a tremendous actor she really takes the show to a whole new level that the, her relationship with Jimmy and man it's just so good you just gotta watch it I just everyone listening to this needs to watch that show um, alright why don't we do the Kumpatow 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 Kirk's <laughs> music pick of the week uh, here is so my music pick for the week since I was on a hard rock tip last week I'm gonna stay on it 
for this week. I, yeah. I, I heard from a lot of people who were very happy about me talking um, about the Mars, Mars Volta. Volta. Yeah. Went back and listened to some Mars Volta. Good band. Um, so this week I'm gonna I'm gonna do a Muse track because this is a band that I used to really like and I don't like their new stuff very much, which is a, I think a kind of a common thing that people think about bands. And I made a joke about this I think during E3 that one of the trailers featured I think it was the a trailer for um, Anthem. And I was like, EA's anthem brought to you by the worst Muse song. Because it was the song, <laughs> they will not fall from yeah, like whatever that's that one. The, that's their famous one. I guess. It's such a bad song, I think. In my opinion, it is a bad song. So I heard from a lot of people saying, no, you're wrong. And there's a worse or that one's great. Whatever. So I, was, I later was saying, well, here's what I think the best Muse song is. So in my opinion, the best Muse song is from the best Muse album. It's called Micro Cuts. And it's from the 2001 album Origin of Symmetry. Here's a clip. So I want to play one more clip from that song because the part that, like, that's the song. It rocks hard as fuck. You can't understand what he's saying, which is good because Muse kind of has bad lyrics. And in their earlier stuff, it's so the vocals are so distorted that you can't really understand what he's saying, which sort of makes the music better. But um, Matthew Bellamy, the lead singer and guitar player, uh, r- the ending of this song just goes into this guitar breakdown that then goes into a halftime thing. I'm going to play it in its entirety for you now. So prepare to rock. So when I heard that the first time, I had, this this is 2001. I was a, about to graduate from um, from jazz performance school, so I'm this little saxophonist thinking, you know, I know some shit. And At jazz was performance not, school, it's all about who doesn't graduate. <laughs> you had to get in there, right? It's all about the Muse albums you haven't heard. Um, and in this case, I had not heard of Muse, and I hadn't heard this album. I think no one really had, or at least they were not a well-known band at the time. And someone played this for me, and I lost my shit at this part of the song, because it's just like this extremely bodacious guitar line. He ends with this like double pump down the neck, you know, this like, and it's mixed in a crazy way. And then the whole band comes in on this monster halftime thing. I mean, it's just... It was my first kind of, I mean, I had liked rock music before that, but it was the first time that I was like rocked by a song in this kind of corny sounding way, but I just like lost it and thought it was the best thing ever. And it still to this day is like, I think it rocks so hard. I think it's an awesome moment. So that's my music pick for this week. Next week, I'll pick something maybe a little less in your face, a little less just hard rock, but uh, that's what we're doing. 
Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. That maybe that, so when, when I'm out for the week, you can maybe that that can be your music. But can you give us some Scott. Some, <laughs> some <street laughs> um, all right, Kirk. Well, that has been a fun show, um, and I think that's it for the week. So I will see you next time. All right, Jason. I will see you next week. Kotaku Split Screen is an official podcast of Kotaku.com. It's produced by Kirk Hamilton and me, Jason Schreib. Kirk edits and mixes the podcast and also wrote and performed our theme song and other music. We're a part of the Fusion Podcast Network, where Mandana Mufidi is executive producer of audio. You can find us on popular podcast services like Panoply, NPR Now, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. And we hope you leave us a review if you like what you hear. Find old episodes at kotaku.com slash splitscreen or email us at splitscreen at kotaku.com.